very warm welcome to the Brexit Briefing with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts. Coming up in this edition, our mission is simple. To cut through the jargon, to tell you what's in Theresa May's Brexit agreement, why it won't get through Parliament and what's likely to happen next. Well, it's good to be back. I haven't recorded a Brexit briefing since the end of the party conference season and a lot has happened since then. It's never easy knowing when to record another edition since events are moving so quickly now that there is always a very real danger that no sooner have I recorded a podcast than something dramatic happens and it becomes dated very quickly indeed. But I'm recording this on the morning of Tuesday the 27th of November and the situation is changing day by day. Last Sunday, Theresa May was in Brussels where her agreement was signed off by the EU and on Monday she presented it to the House of Commons. Here's a brief extract of what she had to say. At yesterday's special European Council in Brussels, I reached a deal with the leaders of the other 27 EU member states on a withdrawal agreement that will ensure our smooth and orderly departure on the 29th of March next year, and tied to this agreement a political declaration on an ambitious future partnership that is in our national interest. Mr Speaker, this is the right deal for Britain because it delivers on the democratic decision of the British people. It takes back control of our borders, it ends the free movement of people in full once and for all, allowing the government to introduce a new skills-based immigration system. It takes back control of our laws, it ends the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice in the UK and means instead of our laws, be, instead our laws being made in our parliaments enforced by our courts. And it takes back control of our money. It ends the vast annual payments we send to Brussels. So instead we can send, spend taxpayers' money on our own priorities, including the £394 million a week of extra investment into our long-term plan for the National Health Service. By creating a new free trade area with no tariffs, fees, charges, quantitative restrictions or rules of origin checks, this deal protects jobs, including those that rely on integrated supply chains. It protects our security with a close relationship on defence and on tackling crime and terrorism, which will help to keep all our people safe. And it protects the integrity of our United Kingdom, meeting our commitments in Northern Ireland and delivering for the whole UK family, including our overseas territories and the Crown dependencies. That bit about the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice coming to an end is certainly questionable. More on that later. But there are lots and lots of reasons not to like the deal, and as ever, the devil is in the detail. I'm going to run through a few examples now of why this deal is so flawed and so dangerous. There's nowhere near enough time in this podcast to go through it all. It's over 500 pages long, this deal. So I'll just give a few brief examples now over the next few minutes, and it gives you an idea of why this deal must, must, must be ditched. Article 101 states that all EU officials bar members of the European Parliament can claim immunity under the terms of EU protocols on the privileges and immunities of the European Union. EIB bankers, European investment bankers working in London after Brexit will have immunity from British law. Now this would very obviously leave us open to money laundering Furthermore, the UK must agree not to prosecute EU employees who are or who might deemed in the future to be criminals. This is absolutely crazy stuff. 
the UK must promise never to tax EU officials based in the UK on their EU pensions or tax any current ones on their salaries. And that's bad news for former EU commissioners like Neil Kinnock and Peter Mandelson. Article 104 states the EU and its employees are immune to UK tax laws. Ladies, there's the tampon tax clause. We obey EU laws on VAT with no chance of losing the tampon tax even if we agree a better deal in December 2020 because we hereby agree to obey other EU VAT rules for five years after the transition period. Current EU rules prohibit zero-rated VAT on products like tampons that did not have such exemptions before the country joined the EU. Article 8 states that the UK is shut out of all EU networks and databases for security, yet no such provision exists to shut the EU out of UK databases. Articles 15 and 16 state all EU citizens must be given permanent right of residence after five years. Which sounds quite reasonable until you read on and find that this will be decided by EU rather than UK rules. Article 37 permits the government to spend taxpayers' money telling everyone how wonderful this agreement is. Take note of Theresa May's proposed nationwide tour over the next two weeks. Articles 44 to 61 outline how the EU will continue to set rules for UK intellectual property law. Article 105 outlines how the UK is forbidden from revealing anything the EU is told or tells us about the finer points of the deal and its operation. Articles 140 to 142 outlines how the UK shall be liable for any outstanding commitments after 2022. Article 142, subsection 2, specifically mentions pensions. All very fair and reasonable again, until I tell you that the amount owed will be calculated by guess who? The EU. Articles 152 to 154 state that the UK will remain a party, i.e. coffered money, for European development funds. The EU continues to calculate how much money the UK should pay into it. So, hey, thank goodness Brussels doesn't have any accountancy issues, eh? <laughs> I could go on. That is the short version. On the subject of a post-Brexit trade deal with the USA, remember Barack Obama's back-of-the-queue threat to the British people a few weeks before the referendum in 2016? Well, it was an incredibly foolish thing for him to say because he was going to be out of the White House by early 2017, regardless of which way the referendum went. He did it to help out David Cameron, but it backfired spectacularly. He wasn't quite seen as the cool dude president of eight years earlier by that stage, and besides, the British people do not take kindly to being threatened. If anything, Obama's words may have tipped the referendum in favour of leave. Now, I'm not President Trump's biggest fan, and I would not have voted for him, but at least we now have a president in the White House who actually likes and respects this country. 
and President Trump made it clear very early on that he was more than willing to do a trade deal with the UK. But President Trump has made it clear that he's no fan of the agreement and says that it places a trade deal in jeopardy. Sounds like a great deal for the EU, and I think we have to do this. Uh, I think we have to take a look at seriously whether or not the uh, UK is allowed to trade, because, you know, right now, if you look at the deal, they may not be able to trade with us, and that wouldn't be a good thing. I don't think they meant that. I don't think that the Prime Minister meant that, and hopefully she'll be able to do something about that. But right now, as the deal stands, she may not, they may not be able to trade with the U.S. And I don't think they want that at all. That would be a very big negative for the deal. But speaking at the Royal Welsh Winter Fair on Tuesday, Theresa May seemed to suggest it would be possible to strike trade deals with the wider world under her proposed deal. What the political declaration makes clear is we will have an independent trade policy. We will be able to strike trade deals around the rest of the world. We're talking, well, we've had a, we have a working group that is working with the United States looking at exactly this, uh, this issue. But also we're talking with others around the rest of the world about the possibility of trade deals there as well. So, for example, with uh, a number of countries that I met at the summit with Asian countries uh, in Brussels a few weeks ago talking about a real enthusiasm for trade deals with the UK. We will have that ability outside the European Union to make those decisions on trade deals for ourselves. It will no longer be a decision being taken by Brussels. We will have control of that and we will strike trade deals that will enhance our prosperity, enhance our economy and bring jobs to the UK. Notice the way the Prime Minister did not dismiss what President Trump had said outright. It seems that she knows she would require the cooperation, or dare I say it, the permission of the EU to go ahead with such deals long after we have left the Union. The articles and the clauses in the document do seem to back that up. One of the main criticisms I have of mainstream media political reporters, especially those on TV, is that they very often come across as being more interested in gossip than in explaining issues. And with that in mind, we hear a lot about the Northern Ireland backstop. But I can't think of many occasions where a political reporter on TV has made a real effort to explain what the backstop is and why it is so controversial. Here goes. As things stand, goods and services are traded between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland with very few restrictions. Yes, they have separate currencies. Northern Ireland uses the pound. The Republic of Ireland uses the euro. Yes, they have separate rates of VAT and different tax arrangements, but there are no border checks. The UK and the Republic of Ireland are currently part of the EU Single Market and Customs Union, so products do not need to be inspected for customs and standards. But after Brexit, all that could change. Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland could be in different customs and regulatory regimes. But does this mean border checks are necessary? I don't think so. More on that in a moment. But few want a hard border. It is a myth that the Belfast Agreement, often wrongly referred to as the Good Friday Agreement, stipulates that there cannot be a hard border. It does not say that. But few would argue that a hard border is a good idea for all sorts of economic and political reasons. So the backstop is seen as a safety net to prevent that hard border. 
the EU originally proposed a backstop that would mean Northern Ireland staying in the EU customs union, large parts of the single market and the EU VAT system. Chief Negotiator Michel Barnier continually emphasised that this backstop could only apply to Northern Ireland. The backstop will only apply to the Irish border if a wider deal or technological solutions cannot be found to keep the border as frictionless as it is today. And an agreement on the backstop is important because the EU will not agree to a transitional period and substantive trade talks until it is in place. The problem is that if the backstop came into play, it would effectively create a customs border down the middle of the Irish Sea, and that is not acceptable to Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party, whose votes are needed by Theresa May's Conservative government at Westminster, not only to get the withdrawal agreement through Parliament, but also to get her day-to-day legislation through the House. Without the DUP's confidence and supply arrangement, the government would fall. Here's what DUP leader Arlene Foster had to say about the proposed backstop at her party's conference last weekend. Our country and our people deserve a stable government that will focus on taking decisions to make a real and meaningful difference to the lives of our people up and down our country. The Prime Minister has not been able to guarantee an outcome that eliminates the risk of the introduction of the so-called backstop arrangements. Now, on the one hand, we're told that the backstop would be the best of both worlds. And on the other hand, we're told we're not going to need the backstop. So, ladies and gentlemen, therein lies one of the many contradictions at the heart of this draft withdrawal agreement. In such circumstances, Northern Ireland alone would be aligned to numerous EU single market regulations, while Great Britain would not. Such a scenario, in the medium term, would inevitably lead to barriers to trade within the United Kingdom internal market. Let me be very clear, that is not in the national interest. A few observations. First of all, as we have already alluded to in this podcast and in previous Brexit briefings, It is essential that the whole of the United Kingdom leaves the customs union if we are to be able to form trade agreements with the wider world. Secondly, under the proposed agreement, it would require the cooperation of both the UK and the EU for the backstop to come to an end. Indeed, Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar has said that the backstop must not be time-limited. So, in other words the EU would have the power to keep Northern Ireland in the customs union and thereby prevent trade deals being formed with the wider world indefinitely. Or, if Great Britain was outside the customs union, but Northern Ireland was inside the customs union, Northern Ireland would be missing out on many of the key benefits of Brexit. There is no way the DUP could even contemplate voting for it. And thirdly, Are we seriously being asked to believe that in 2018 a website or an app could not be created so that haulage firms could declare what's in their vehicles remotely? That, along with occasional customs checks at supermarkets, warehouses and so on, would surely be enough to solve this. 
But I've got an even better idea. Membership of EFTA. More on that in a few minutes. But it's clear that the agreement Theresa May did in Brussels last Sunday will not get through the House of Commons. As we know, the Conservatives are the largest party but do not have an overall majority and therefore rely on the DUP's 10 MPs to get their day-to-day legislation through the House. But there's no way the DUP will vote for the deal for the reasons I've just said. In addition, it seems likely there are at least 80 Conservative MPs who will not vote for it. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn has severely criticised the deal, and although there is a lack of internal discipline in the Labour Party, it doesn't appear as though many MPs will endorse the deal either. So whichever way you look at it, the maths do not stack up for Theresa May. She's now going on a two-week tour of the country to try and sell the deal, and there may even be a TV debate with Jeremy Corbyn, though don't bet on it would be my advice, but I just can't see a way that she can even come close to getting this through the House of Commons when the vote comes on the 11th of December. It won't just be a defeat, it'll be a defeat by a significant margin, quite possibly of well over 100. So where does that leave us? There's a case going on at the European Court of Justice this week that will determine whether Article 50 can be stopped, but I'm not placing too much emphasis on that because I can't see there being a parliamentary majority for it, even if the court rules it's possible. Nor do I see there being a second referendum. The Electoral Commission requires six months' notice for a referendum, and that in itself takes us well beyond the 29th of March 2019, the date when the UK is legally enshrined to be leaving the European Union. Before a referendum is called, legislation would have to get through the House of Commons to halt Article 50. Again, is that even possible? And that would be followed by legislation for the referendum. And that would have to deal with issues such as, what would the question be on the ballot paper? This in itself would be a time-consuming process. After that, if it could somehow get through the House, official campaigns would need to be appointed for both sides by the Electoral Commission. Then we'd have to have the campaign followed by the vote. That would take at least a year, realistically. And then once the vote was over, what if the result was still leave? Or what if leave won by an even wider margin than before? Or what if it was a narrow win for Remain this time? No, a second referendum is not going to happen. It would have all sorts of constitutional implications and would undermine the very role of Parliament itself. So, faced with the very real prospect of a no-deal Brexit, what is likely to happen? And I am not blasé about a no-deal Brexit. I've warned about it, in fact, in previous Brexit briefings. Go back and listen to them if you haven't heard them already. I take seriously the prospect of queues of lorries at Dover, with no customs arrangements in place. I take seriously no legislation to keep our aeroplanes in the skies. There would be wide-ranging implications for our horse racing and Formula One racing industries that have barely been discussed. In reality, no deal would mean lots of hastily arranged little side deals to keep life running relatively smoothly in this country. But there is a solution, 
a sensible way forward, and one that is rapidly gaining popularity, as I have been predicting in Brexit briefing podcasts for many months, and that is membership of the European Free Trade Area, EFTA. If the UK chose to join EFTA, whose current members are Norway, Switzerland, Liechtenstein and Iceland, and remain in the European Economic Area, we would be able to leave the EU, agree our own trade deals with non-EU countries, since we would not be in the customs union, and we would stay in the single market, allowing free movement of goods, services and capital. Crucially, we would also be able to suspend free movement of people, since EFTA members are allowed to activate Article 112 of the EEA agreement, known as the emergency break. This method has been used by Liechtenstein to suspend freedom of movement indefinitely and implement its own quota system. As a far larger country with much more clout, the UK would be able to do the same with ease. There are inevitably downsides to EFTA EEA membership and we should be honest about those. We would still have to pay some money in every year, though nowhere near as much as at present. We'd also have to accept the EU's regulations when we traded with them, but then again, we also have to accept the rules of the USA, China, India, or any other country we choose to trade with, which is reasonable. But on the crucial matters, parliamentary sovereignty, the supremacy of British courts, immigration controls, the ability to form trade deals with the wider world, then the ability to form a genuinely independent foreign policy, we would be winners on all counts. We would no longer be in a situation where EU law overrides British law. The highest courts in the land would sit in this country. Our elected representatives in Parliament would have the power to set criteria to limit immigration levels. Our armed forces personnel would never ever have to swear an oath of allegiance to the EU flag. It does seem to be coming. Some of us were warning about that before the referendum. And we would be free from the protectionist EU regulations that currently prevent us from forming trade deals with the wider world, such as Brazil, India and Singapore, places with growing economies and populations where people actually live. As members of EFTA, the Northern Ireland border would operate in much the same way as the Norway-Sweden border, where you have Norway, a non-EU member, in EFTA, inside the single market but outside the customs union, and Sweden, a full EU member, but they enjoy a frictionless border, thanks to goodwill and cooperation on all sides. If Norway and Sweden can do it, the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland can do it. Stephen Kinnock on the Labour side and Nick Bowles for the Conservatives have been vocal supporters of the EFTA plan. I think that faced with a stark reality of a no-deal Brexit, a private members' bill for EFTA EEA membership stands a good chance of getting through the House. It is a good, fair solution all round. Not perfect, but much more appealing than any available alternative. But time is running out, and, in reality, it would be better for Mrs May to ditch her doomed agreement right now so we can put the next two weeks to better use. And that brings us to the end of another Brexit briefing. You're welcome to send me your thoughts. You can drop me an email at marcusstead at hotmail.co.uk 
or tweet me, I'm at Marcus Stead. Thank you for listening. See you again soon.